Hello and welcome to another episode of Cloud Security Podcast. In this episode, we spoke about infrastructure as code security. For people who don't know what infrastructure as code is or what is security or what is DevSecOps in infrastructure as code, this is the episode for you. I have Matt Johnson from Bridge Crew and we spoke in length about how do you start in securing infrastructure as code, why infrastructure as code is changing the world in the cloud security space. If these are topics which are interesting for you and a lot more, uh, we were answering all of that question in this episode. As always, we do appreciate the support in the episode and the questions that you guys ask on live streams. It really makes it really fascinating and interesting that there's so many people interested in this space. So thank you again for that. I also wanted to call out the fact that we are now on Clubhouse. For people who don't know that social media app, we are running a show on it every week as well as a podcast so if you're someone who's on the clubhouse do search for me it's just at ashish rajan which is my first name or just search for cloud security and you'll find at least the episode in there and we should be able to kind of interact over there as well apart from that if you have any feedback and if you feel this would be valuable for someone else who's trying to look into what automation of security could be this could be a great episode for you to pass on to them write a review about it or maybe even share it with other friends if they find it valuable cool i am gonna let you stop talking i guess and let you get into the episode but this was a great one for anyone who's trying to get into infrastructure as code security we've recommended some open source tools as well for you to start if you're starting for the first time in this space All right talk to you in the next episode Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Coffee with Ashish, which is also for Cloud Security Podcast. If you're here for the first time, we talk about cloud security topics that is affecting the IT world and the OT world. And we've been talking about this for a whole season. This is season two. And I have an amazing guest today because we have an interesting topic. For such as code security, what is it? And why should even we care about security? What do you even like a developer-based security? So... All this and a lot more, and I've got a really great person over here because I've been following his content for some time, and I'm really glad that I could bring him on. Hey, Ashish, how's it going? Good. Thanks for coming in, Matt. Not a problem at all. Thanks for having me. I'm going to start with the obvious one, right? How did you get into this space? Like, I, I was going to say cybersecurity space, but how did you get into this space at all? Like, the developer advocate, what is it? What do you yeah. guys do? It's a really interesting one, actually. I have always been, like... I've always been a security geek. I always liked kind of the idea of being a pen tester and kind of, you know, breaking things in creative ways and, and all that kind of stuff. And so I've always kind of had a security background. My profession actually kind of took me into Linux and networking and kind of low level operations kind of before DevOps when it was kind of separate ops teams and dev teams and QA teams. So that's kind of how I got into like my first, you know, official like proper IT job. And from there, kind of ever since, I've just found myself always working on like that bridge between developers and operations. So when I was in an ops team, we'd always be trying to write tools to allow like even simple stuff that never used to exist with on-premise data centers, like just giving developers access to the logs from production so that they don't need to keep requesting the logs from operation team, you know, just automating that kind of ability for developers to self-serve. And so for a long time, I've just kind of worked in that like developer tooling space. And then that kind of got rebranded as DevOps and started working closer with the developers. 
but all the way through it, much of it even just doing kind of that role is advocacy. Like whether it's advocacy to the developers as to how to use those tools or why they might want to use those tools or why they might want to output the logs in a certain format to make it easier for us to kind of provide that data back to them through like Kibana and Elkstacks and all that kind of stuff. So I just kind of naturally fell into the advocacy role. I got an opportunity in my last company to kind of do that full time because I was finding myself doing a lot of the conference talks and a lot of the kind of internal talks within our company anyway. And mm -hmm. then with Bridge Crew, it's kind of allowed me to tie those two passions together. Like so I am doing advocacy, but I'm also doing it for like a really cool, like security focused team. So I get to kind of keep that hobbyist, like pen testy security passion and I get to do the advocacy stuff. I love the fact that your passion for combining how others can learn and build their tools and do all this. I think it's a great piece of work, which has been almost like coming up in the last couple of years, right? I don't think before that there was a whole developer advocating or maybe even longer, but I think it's a great field just because it allows people to, Hey, I have this person who's not a salesperson and I can just talk to him about how do I do this? And as a, right. tech, on a technical level, that's what I love this, about this field. So I'm, I'm glad we have, we have people like you as a developer advocate, man. What about cloud security though? How do you define cloud security? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's just kind of a catch-all term. Like for me, I think security is such a, it's kind of insane for how kind of small the security industry is in general, but like it covers so many things. Like for me, kind of cloud security, if I had to put in a term on it, anything that should, anything that changes because of needing to use, you know, the eyes and the functionality that the cloud provide, we've always had certain types of security transfer perfectly into the cloud, right? We've always had to close open ports. We've always had to not give away our SSH private keys. We've always had to, you know, make sure we don't have SQL injection and, you know, application vulnerabilities and try and protect against them and protect against insecure dependencies. All of that is still necessary today. If someone says cloud security, you kind of still have to consider all of that because just because your applications are running in the cloud, that is all still normal security stuff. <laughs> but for me, the things that are cloud specific, I think, are often overlooked the fact that there are different ways of doing things on Amazon and Azure and you know Google and pick your favorite cloud provider. There are ways of doing things on those platforms that are different than if you were doing it yourself or on-prem or whatever. And there are APIs that didn't exist. And for example, IAM, like that is a AWS only thing and getting that wrong could allow someone to assume an admin role into your account and access all your resources. Like that is 100% cloud security because that is a security thing you need to care about that you wouldn't care about if you weren't running in the cloud because it's something that only exists to enable that cloud service. I, I guess that's how I'd define it. It's an interesting that's question. Like, yeah, and to your point, in an on-premise world, identity, depending on the organization, identity is actually a whole team. You wouldn't even like hear about it until like, oh, I need access to this AWS thing. I don't know what it is, but I guess I need access to it. And then you go to this identity team and hey, can I get access or whatever the process may be. But in a cloud world, uh, because identity is considered like, I guess the crown jewel, that's the new parameter as a lot of people are calling it. Right. It's, uh, it's kind of like the obvious, like, oh, every, if anyone gets access to identity, you have access to the whole data center. Yeah, like it's the, the, the downside of it being AP, multi-tenant APIs that anyone can use is there has to be a way of granting anyone in the world access to those things that anyone, yeah. 
So that, yeah. that kind of that side of things, I definitely see as cloud security. And and there's a few other things that like it's not really security. It's more that historically we got away with doing security through obscurity. So if you're mm -hmm. in a private data center and you have like firewalls and all that kind of stuff, it didn't really matter if someone accidentally spun up a VM they shouldn't have done with a load of open ports and things, because chances are it's in a private subnet, like it's only accessible from within that data center. It's still bad. It still allows an attacker to kind of move sideways and, and find other footholds. Like, but chances are you would have got away with it. Like you're not going to get away with that accidentally opening up uh, an EC2 instance with a public IP or like accidentally creating it with a public IP. So I think even some of the traditional stuff, like we have to be more mindful of, and I guess we could call that cloud security as well. Yeah. And, and because the topic is infrastructure as code and for some people may not even know what infrastructure as code is. So what is infrastructure as code and what is infrastructure as code security? Like everything we've kind of just talked about there, like I do come from like a proper like hardware Linux operation geek side. So you probably noticed like what I was just talking about was SSH and VMs and spinning things up. Yep. Like all that kind of like everything you do in the cloud nowadays, realistically, unless you're just playing around, unless you're just kind of learning a new feature or a new thing, you're realistically not going to be using the UI to spin up your resources, you know, across any cloud provider, you're going to be using the APIs, or you are more likely going to be using some kind of tool or framework that consumes those APIs like Terraform or like CloudFormation, so that you can kind of maintain a bit of sanity on what infrastructure you're running. And so any kind of security aspects around like how you're writing and managing that infrastructure as code, how you're codifying your, like I said, be Terraform, be it serverless framework, be it CloudFormation, anything you can do to kind of embed security at that level so that you're not only thinking about security risks once you have real infrastructure running. Like infrastructure as code security allows us to think about security before we even apply that Terraform, before we even run that CloudFormation and allows us to kind of try and detect things before they even make it to production. In the same way you'd run kind of security tests and you know unit tests and things against your application code base, you wouldn't just find out it's broken when you deploy it to production, hopefully. You'd, you'd do your best <laughs> to kind of have some kind of CI system to make sure you're catching issues first. Yep. Uh, and do you find this is quite common? Like the whole infrastructure score, is it becoming common? Because I think I, I hear a lot of people talk about the fact that you and I are total believers of this fact that we should automate everything and we should have the infrastructure as code. Do you find uh, that a lot more people are coming into the space? I think from the conversations we've been having, it is growing. The message is getting out there that actually like uh, infrastructure as code is kind of mature enough that this is how you should be running it. And I think there's also a scenario where the number of products from each cloud provider now and the number of dependencies you need. So for example, spinning up a Kubernetes cluster in Amazon, like if you actually look like there's Terraform modules for that now, because even in Terraform, the individual number of objects you need, like a VPC and a subnet and a VPC and this and this and this and this and this, like it's, it's just not really feasible to manage a cloud estate anymore without infrastructure as code. So I think purely for that, you know, engineers are lazy in a good way kind of thing. I think, yeah, infrastructure as code is like the only way people are, are realistically going to get to that problem. And I think that message has, has definitely been growing in the last kind of couple of years that this is now the way to do it. 
I thought that was supposed to be a secret between all of us that we don't tell them we're lazy. We just charge <laughs> them for the eight hours you spend. But sure, uh, Matt, I'm one of the hardworking people, just in case my boss is listening. <laughs> I was like, yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I always say I script badly in Python when I have to. So, you know, I probably <laughs> did spend eight hours writing the automation. To... <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. And uh, I, I, I love that about automation. And I feel like everyone's trying to... and. I must clarify the, the point that you and I are both are trying to make about automation. It's not the fact that it's just lazy. It's just the fact that, well, you can work on more interesting things instead of repeating the same thing again and again. So, and I think, do you find this is more developers or is it more security people? Or is it a mix of people trying to work in this infrastructure as code security space? Because I, I, I do want to go a layer deeper. And I think, I, I think you know where I'm going with this, but I'm keen to know, do you find like an equal spread? Yeah, so I, I think like everything it depends i think there are teams of developers like i you know the the term kind of security advocate within like a dev mm -hmm. team has kind of started becoming more and more popular like someone who is a developer in that developer team but also yep. like has a mindset to be thinking about security either naturally or like because the company wanted to make sure there was someone on that team with a security focus and has kind of created that role and, and given it a name i think you have dev teams with like mindsets like that where people have either been bitten by security before and you know really want to ensure that they're thinking about security as part of their dev pipeline but then i think equally you also have developers that are just focused on product version updates deadlines you know and security is still a little bit of a pain in the ass and in those teams you might have a security team coming with a massive list of checkboxes for a given validation or compliance and, you know, there's still that kind of us and them mentality of security are slowing us down. Yeah. So I think you do get both. I, I still certainly see both sides. And one cool thing about infrastructure as code security is actually showing kind of people who are still a little bit reticent and see security as a blocker. Actually, how using automation, using infrastructure as code, you can actually turn security into an enabler. Like it doesn't have to be. I spend a manual day of my week going through security issues. You know, you can just have that peace of mind as part of your pipeline. Oh, so and is that what would be developer first cloud security? I think I've heard you talk about that in your, some of your talks. What is developer first cloud security? Yeah, so exactly. Developer first cloud security or DevSecOps, because we seem to need to give everything an acronym these days. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Like I'm still not over the fact we now give vulnerabilities their own websites and logos and stuff. But anyway, <laughs> oh yes, uh, all of us are being scarred because clearly yeah. uh, I'm not gonna go into that. But otherwise, this might turn into a bitch fest. But yeah, right, <laughs> just like we had the DevOps movement, right? When suddenly yeah. your dev team and your ops team took like I'm probably gonna give a horrible like recap of DevOps here, but like you know the idea that you you take the two teams, merge them into one team and they all have a shared responsibility for the entire life cycle of the application so that you know you need to automate you need to work with the ops team and the ops team with the dev team from the very start to ensure logging self serve you know ci cd and in just that way you know operations effectively then became a you know a code problem right we we started to codify we started building automation pipelines we started automating logging and automating health checks and you know you see that kind of thing with like in kubernetes nowadays like built in in just the same way like security teams embedding themselves or becoming part of the responsibility of the dev team as well like that's developer first security so instead of having 
you know, your ops and your dev stuff in your dev team, and then security still being a bunch of dashboards and a bunch of tools by a security team somewhere completely separately, you're actually taking the same approach. How do we build those security checks? How do we build security validation? How do we do that in a codified way that doesn't feel to the developer like taking a break from their development to go and do some other stuff somewhere else? And a mm -hmm. fine example of that would be, so we have, uh, and we'll talk about open source tools like Chekhov and things like that, but our Bridge Crew platform, for example, can integrate with GitHub to do automatic security scannings of pull requests. So like yep. that for me is a perfect example of like developer first security. The developer raises a PR to merge into their production or their testing or you know whatever branch. And in the same tool they're already using, they're already in GitHub, it's part of their day-to-day -day workflow. In there, they immediately see an automated comment going, hey, you're about to commit some Terraform, which actually is really insecure here's the diff, here's what we'd recommend changing on that. You know, that isn't, I need to go to a separate security tool and then run a scan and wait for the results and download the PDF or go and talk to the security team to bless the release. You know, it's, it's exactly what they'd be expecting to see from their unit tests or their integration tests or, you know, any, anything else. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And I must say, every time I've spoken about automation and coding to securities, I almost get, what, what, <laughs> what, what? So why isn't, and, and, and I can totally go into this quite, quite a bit, but I think what you're also kind of pointing out is the fact that maybe it's time that developers should become part of the security team as well, where they can help security bridge that gap, like I'm a bridge crew, bridge that gap into oh, this is how you can automate this. You don't have to look at all the screens and all the codes coming out of it. If you just give me the list, I can automate it. If that's what you want to go down the path of, I love it and I 100% I'm behind it. So I'm, I'm glad you're promoting it, man. I'm glad you're talking about it as well. I think something else you kind of touch on and would love to hear thoughts on this as well. Because you mentioned everything is turning into a code and obviously developer land is code when it's not running in, in live production. And then there is code, which is just, lying in GitHub. Is there like a static code analysis or runtime analysis, dynamic analysis, is that kind of stuff in this space as well? Yeah, hundred percent. And, and just on the, on that topic. Yeah. We'll come back to that actually. Yeah. So <laughs> static analysis, I'm, I'm just trying to kind of mentally keep, keep things you oh, yeah, said no. on my Maybe mental Maybe we can stack. do that. If you want, you can pause it, come back to it. Whatever, how are you going to dig it? No, that's, that makes absolute sense. I was, I was just going to say like, I, you know, you're talking about kind of, you know, bridge crew and kind of trying to provide that developer first stuff. Like I personally find it impossible to like work on things and kind of talk about things that I'm not passionate about. So yeah, the, the fact <laughs> that I get to like carry the flag for like dev integrated with security and security integrated with dev. It's awesome. I'm yeah. quite privileged. Well, that's why I've got the cloud security podcast. I could just start voicing this as well. That security is changing in the cloud world. It just happens to be a slow change, but I'm yeah. glad people like you and I, uh, some of the people who are actually commenting as well there, I'm sure I'm glad all of us are here to kind of be the, for lack of a better word, pioneers who are trying to promote this, like, Hey, we were the first talk people to talk about this. So. And now we come, come back to the question about static code analysis and runtime analysis. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so exactly the same as in code and just like everything else with security, you know, defense in depth, like one or the other is not the right answer. The right answer is pretty much always all of them or both or however many you have. So we have a open source tool called Chekhov and it's spelled 
slightly differently. So I will try and put that. If you could put the URL. Uh, in yeah, the I'm going to put that in here. I'll be, that'll be easier. So much. Is a perfect example of a static analysis security tool. So the idea with Chekhov is we have a load of security rules, security policies, you know, tr triggers for violations, whatever you want to call them. And Chekhov basically scans the infrastructure as code manifests that you're writing and doesn't require them to already pre be deployed. Because like Terraform, we support Terraform, we support Kubernetes, we support Helm, a serverless framework, ARM for Azure. And the idea is because your Terraform is obviously describing the state of your resources, yep. we can actually look at that configuration. We know what the defaults are, for example, for Terraform. So if you create a resource where the default and like not putting a specific item in a Terraform object is an insecure default, Chekhov will say, hey, you kind of need to say, you know, encryption enabled because you're creating this S3 bucket and by default decryption will be disabled and that's, you know, not good security practice or hey, we've just seen that you've passed secrets into the environment variables of this Terraform and that means it's going to be committed to Git and you don't want secrets in Git so that'd get tr uh, flagged or hey, you've just created a VPC and a set of security rules and these security rules have like zero, 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 zero slash zero, and that will be open to the, the whole public internet. You probably don't want to do that. And we can do all of that in static analysis by kind of warning before you even think about running that Terraform or CloudFormation or pick your favorite infrastructure as code framework. We can kind of go, hey, that's probably not something you want to deploy. And so that's mm -hmm. static analysis, right? And yeah. that still doesn't mean that you don't need to look at the security once you actually have objects running in the cloud, because not everything in your account may have been created by infrastructure as code security. You might have a brownfield site where there was a load of manual stuff set up in the account when the account was first created, and yeah. you're still going to want to check those items for insecure configurations, open ports, secrets where they shouldn't be. And so, yeah, runtime, like, check your infrastructure as code for common issues or issues that may become a security issue when deployed and then sorry build time and then runtime obviously just keep checking the the cloud resources you actually have live as well just to make sure there's no drift in security posture and then there's also a bit of a middle ground as well which is you know you can also put those static analysis tools like in your ci cd pipeline instead of just running them on your developer workstation so that your entire flow from kind of writing the Terraform on the developer's machine, they might validate it just with a local run of the tool. It then gets validated before it gets promoted in the CI/CD pipeline so that you can't accidentally, you know, ignore an issue on your local machine. And then obviously checking um, with runtime as well. I'll definitely recommend people check out uh, Bridge Crew as well, because I think it's really interesting challenge that you guys are solving in this cloud security space as well. There's a, there's a recent tweet from Scott Piper for people who may be following him. I think he had been tracking APIs from 2015 that are about, I started off with a, oh, just about 100 or something in 2015. And now we are at about 9,000 API calls in AWS with about, I don't know, 500 something services since 2015. And it blows my mind. And by the way, this is just one cloud service provider. We're not even talking about Azure or Google Cloud. That's Sorry, what I was on. kind of saying earlier with, you know, it's just not something that you are going to manage nowadays without infrastructure as code. 
there are too many APIs, yeah. there, there are too many products, there are too many things that depend on other things. Like, yeah. Oh my God, yeah. And incident response, I've got someone coming in for incident response next month. And uh, we were talking about this thing where incident response is also not the same as on-premise where, oh, it's just one server. No, you could have hundreds. Like the whole order scaling group and how it dynamically scales into 100 machines, you're basically promoting the wires into 100 machines as well. Like right. that kind of instant response is like, ah, uh, it blows my mind, man. If I, if yeah. I could quickly, that just reminds me of something I was, I didn't say earlier when we were talking about kind of the need for security to become part the, the sec in DevSecOps and kind of developers being in the security team and security team being in the dev teams. As we've just said, like there is too much and it moves too quickly now, like to not have, to not use code to solve this problem. So, you know, a security team that was signing off on VMs or physical servers or kind of the security posture or kind of, you know, Qualys scans to name like one tool that I've, I've kind of historically seen used in like large enterprises. How are they going to do that to your point when there's an autoscaling group, which is spinning up maybe, I don't know, 50 servers every hour and then ripping them down? Yep. Who is blessing those images? What are you doing about lambdas, which may or may not be getting updated every few seconds? Like... There's just too much movement to not take a codified approach to fix it, to monitoring that. Yeah. And if, again, this is just one cloud service provider. Like what if you have Azure and Google Cloud in the mix as well? So you just, I, yeah, it's a scale is a challenge in cloud for all teams, I guess. I've got a question from Casey as well. With cloud networking, is it almost a requirement to learn YAML, Python or JSON for a guy with little coding experience? Should I focus on these? What are your thoughts on this? I, I read that earlier in the in the chat. I think networking especially, like YAML, you're you're not really gonna get away from it because no matter which infrastructure as code framework you write in, you're probably gonna be writing some YAML or some JSON. So, you know, the basic syntax of YAML and JSON and use like an online like syntax testing, parsing tool to to kind of understand the the basics of that syntax i think that that's necessary in terms of python i don't think so i like python and i kind of bridge that gap between like ops and and code and dev and things but you know there's enough maturity in like terraform modules for example like learning terraform and understanding like how the terraform vpc module creates a VPC in your cloud environment or how you add security rules or how you do VPC peerings and things like that. I think there's enough maturity in those objects within Terraform that you could probably just learn an infrastructure as code language and kind of keep yourself away from Python. Unless you're doing some like really like cutting edge customization stuff, I'm pretty sure that the networking side of those tools is pretty solid. That's a great answer, man. I, I think worthwhile calling out because Terraform would make you cloud agnostic as well, in a way. Well, right. You just still need well to learn API calls for each individual cloud providers, but at least you'll you'll learn a skill, which is the same with Python as well. So to your point, yeah, I can, I can see value in that as well. I mean, there's, uh, there's, there's nothing wrong with learning a programming language for sure. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. But, Especially if you it, haven't done something before, like just to get yeah. that, the, the logical brain working on how do I follow a sequence? What does this mean? Right. But yeah, in terms of like, would I put that down as like absolute requirement to kind of start thinking about using infrastructure as code? Like, no, absolutely not. Like try, yeah. try Terraform. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, by the way, if you're learning Python, Python, Python 3, not 2.7, 
just saying. <laughs> three, that, three point, three point nine. are we on now? Oh, yeah. And I have a question for Vinita as well. What kind of specific training do you recommend for developers who are new to IAC? Yeah, I saw this and I went, crap, I don't have an answer to that. I think... I, I was going to say, with infrastructure as code security, I usually, depending on which cloud service provider you're working with, we already spoke about the fact that, say, AWS has 9,000 APIs to deal with. If you have the cloud service provider that you've already preferred in your organization, AWS, Azure, or Google Cloud, most of them usually have like a ready-to-go template on their websites on how to develop an infrastructure. That's a great way to start. Uh, in terms of training, there's there's a lot of DevOps training. There's a lot of automation training, which they talk about they talk about how to use uh, Terraform, how to use Jenkins, and all, all these things. But these are just tools for enabling you to do the infrastructure as code. So I normally just start with the cloud service provider and see what they have done, because they don't normally have a service. I think um, you have cloud formation templates for AWS, template for Azure, and the same goes across the board. But it depends on the, the provider you choose, but most providers will actually have like a template for you to start with. And then you start layering that with Terraform or Python to add the automation to it. I don't know, yeah. what, what, what do you think, man? Yeah, I, I agree. Like there's so many kind of free resources available, like more and more people, especially with kind of COVID and the fact that we're not traveling as like, I'm just seeing so many like good online resources. It'll completely depend to Shishi's point. What are your requirements? Which cloud provider do you care about? What problems are you and your, your team trying to solve? I definitely think like having a project, like having a mini goal in mind, like pick something you want to do and then start reading down the line of how you will do that. Googling and online resources. And I think trying to just learn infrastructure as code doesn't particularly work. You kind of just want to pick yourself something you want to achieve and kind of follow that path to learning the bits necessary because everyone mm -hmm. has their own like slight opinions on infrastructure as code and the best way to do it and the wrong way to do it. And you, you're better just focusing on a particular challenge, I'd say. And even if that's just a tiny, a, a tiny little goal, we yeah. have an, another open source tool called Air IAM. Um, oh yes, and and one, of the, a lot of and one of the cool things that can do is basically connect to your AWS account, take all of your IAM roles, users, permissions, policies, and convert it into Terraform. So even if you and and the idea being that you can then start managing your IAM configuration as codified, you know, so you can commit it to Git, you can version it, you can track it, you can then see. And you can use that kind of snapshot of state to check drift detection for your IAM environment. In fact, we did a blog post kind of hacking that together in a little CICD pipeline to kind of take that snapshot and then compare it with a diff tool against a future version to see if your IAM configs changed. But for example, like even if you're not planning to use that Terraform, what you will end up with is a set of Terraform which replicates your IAM configuration. So it might be cool to go and read through that Terraform to kind of understand how that translates to the things you actually have in your IAM environment. There's also another open source tool called Terraformer, which does exactly the same for kind of other AWS objects like EC2 VMs and things like that. So that could be a cool way of kind of taking a snapshot into IAC of what you already have running and kind of use that to learn like, oh, okay, so this is how this is represented in Terraform. That might give you a really good, good starting point. Yep, perfect. And I think we've got a a good response from Kevin as well. Uh, honestly, I'm liking PowerShell a lot recently because it's now cross-platform supported by both Azure and AWS. 
nice way to board the CLI, like running single commands or running a full script, but I agree with the host. IAC languages, when that represents, is the simplest. I didn't realize PowerShell was cross-platform. Yeah. That's good to I'm, know. Yeah. I'm also intrigued what he means by supports by AWS. I'm going to have to add that to my list of things to um, go and research. Yeah. Like, does that mean that like the AWS... The CLI. AWS CLI has like auto completion and like some like some PowerShell like objects to make it work really Actually, well. Oh yeah, so I, I know for sure PowerShell definitely allows you to install AWS CLI. There's another one. Sometimes software test engineers are great at for automating security since they like to think about breaking things versus just happy my code works. <laughs> that that yeah. What do you think, man? I like that. Any yeah, and I think that? I think that's. Kind of what I was saying before about like the different mindsets, you do get some like kind of security focused developers that want to be that security advocate and maybe QA test engineers are actually kind of a perfect candidate for that role within a team. And then you get developers that like, yeah, just need to get the, the code working, get it running, like, you know, meeting the deadlines. Maybe you have like a really angry product manager that's, you know, <laughs> breathing down your neck. Uh that's right. All our product managers are nice. They just want <laughs> deadlines and features. <laughs> Kevin just shared a link. So it seems PowerShell is a core cross-platform across Windows, Linux, and Mac OS. Huh. Dude, you've made us learn something now. That's cool. Uh, uh, Microsoft's yeah, doing figured... the whole, like, <laughs> Microsoft's like really embracing the whole open soft bandwagon thing, aren't they, at the moment? Yeah, and it's, like... a, it's a great podcast to be bringing this up as well, because we're going to go into the whole open source versus paid versions as well. I was going to bring up uh, that, but... Coming back to our actual interview, thank you guys and keep those questions coming in. In terms of, we spoke about the whole static analysis and runtime analysis, and I believe Bridge Crew has a few products in this space as well. We mentioned Chekhov already, you mentioned ARIM already. And for people who don't know, and I know there are not that many, but are there any open source codes that you can, source code names that you can share and what do they do, I guess? Yeah, sure. So certainly for us, we have uh, Chekhov, which is, you know, static analysis for infrastructure as code security. That's if, if you take like one command to try downloading and run uh, pip install or brew install Chekhov and just try running it against a directory that has either some Kubernetes or some CloudFormation or some Terraform in it. And the cool thing with that is community contributions of the security policies that it checks for by default are actually in the code base. So there's no like downloading a tool and then have to go and get a rule set from somewhere for that tool. Like we have like 500 plus policies out of the box. So that's a really good place to start like in the world of infrastructure as code security. We've also got AIM, which I just kind of touched on, which is designed really to help you codify and also look for issues in your IAM configuration, like misused roles, unused users, users with passwords that, you know, should have been rotated and haven't, things like that. We then also got a load of training resources that might be really useful regardless of, you know, whose open source tool you do and don't use for your IAC security. So we have the GOAT projects. So we have TerraGOAT and CloudFormation GOAT, and they are basically purposely vulnerable Git repos with a load of really badly written insecure infrastructure as code in it. So the Terraform one obviously has a load of in insecure Terraform with like all the bad defaults and all the security misconfigurations. Uh, and that's really good for like running these IEC security tools against if you don't want to run them against your production code, if you're just learning, if you're trying to understand what the tools can do for you, those allow you to kind of have a really good test bed to kind of see 
what those tools are trying to protect against and to kind of see how those tools. Another one I'd love to shout out is Kubernetes Goat, which isn't one of our projects. But yeah, the, the guy that wrote that has done a fantastic job. That's a really good learning resource for Kubernetes security in general. Like there's some misconfigured insecure manifests that work really well with tools like Chekhov, but then there's also kind of information going into like some of the vulnerabilities within the Kubernetes cluster itself and how that might be exploited and how you protect yourself. Like it's a, it's a wonderful resource. Thanks for sharing that. I'm glad I, you bought the tools and the open source vulnerable tools that you've been working on. And I'm going to go back, back to what Casey was talking about earlier. These could be a great way to start for what not to do and what not to deploy in production as well. I think there are a few other projects. I think if you are into just learning about cloud security as well, there's a person named Scott Piper. He has some really awesome resources. I think he started the flaws.cloud as well, which is like a great place to go in and have a look at what a vulnerable AWS environment would be. Although there is an opportunity for people to create something similar in Azure as well as Google Cloud. But th these are great tools, man. But I was going to say, for people who may be starting off, where should they start? Because it could be overwhelming, right? I've, we've already listed like, at least 10 tools right here or 10 open source repositories right here. Where do you start? It'd be remiss of me kind of not to highlight this because Christoph's done a great job of kind of taking kind of Chekhov and other open source IAC security tools and kind of doing a bit of a showdown and kind of showing the differences and showing how you write uh, your own custom checks in each one and kind of really going through like the current landscape of open source kind of infrastructure as code static analysis tools. And it's, it's a wonderful write-up. So I just wanted to share that with everyone. And then, yeah, I, very, very similar to the where would you start to learn infrastructure as code question, I'd say. Have a goal. Everyone will have an opinion. Like everything else online, there will be... You mean partial opinion? <laughs> right, yeah. Like, you know, ev everyone will have an opinion which may or may not be marketing and may or may not be technical. You know what I mean? Like half of the oh, results yeah. you will find on any search for any of these topics will be companies trying to sell you training half of it will be a marketing opinionated version from xyz company you know so i think definitely having a goal is important and one thing that you will find is unless you're kind of in a brand new environment chances are there will be security violations right there will be things in yeah. your current environment that need fixing that can be really daunting so for example you know imagine running a tool like Chekhov against Terragoat, you're going to get, I mean, Terragoat is intentionally vulnerable, but you're going to get hundreds of security violations. And that's not a particularly good feeling for trying to get started in security. So I think one of the things I would say is like, as you go through and like run these tools, try and find tools that don't require you to do kind of any major overhaul, like find the tools that you can really easily just add as an extra command in your CI/CD pipeline, or you can run them locally. Uh, for example, check off against your local Terraform just to get a feel for them. Like you shouldn't be re-architecting things just to kind of start learning and start getting into the, the IAC kind of security world. Have a goal, work out what you're trying to do, and don't be worried if there's suddenly so many things that you think you have to fix immediately. We were actually having this conversation with some community contributors with Chekhov, how do you, as a security team, let's say you say tomorrow, right, we want Chekhov to be in the CICD pipeline of all of our company's infrastructure as code repos. And we're going to block deployment if there's any issues flagged up by Chekhov. 
you are going to be that security team that we were talking about where developers then see you as a blocker, not an enabler. So we were almost talking about like, is, is it worth thinking about a security tool that yes, there are issues, but maybe it only like per pull request or per commit, maybe it just picks the top three of the issues off the list and expects that developer to fix three of the hundred issues and then allows the deployment pipeline to go on. It doesn't allow you to introduce any new issues, but if there's already a massive backlog of security issues, you accept that they are not all going to get fixed immediately. It's better having that information and understanding your security posture and your security footprint, like even if you're not gonna be able to fix it all immediately after. So don't be scared of the output, I guess, is what I'm trying to say in a really roundabout way. It's better to have that data. It's better to have these tools and understand and, and also, you know, don't kind of question yourself either. You know your code base, you know your, your, your product, your app, whatever you're doing, like security tools are going to spit out general security violations. It might be that that security violation doesn't apply to you. It might be that you actually have a reason why you need that to stay as it is. It's not gospel, as they say, don't be worried about all the violations it's better to just kind of understand the state you're in and then work out like where to go from there. Mm, that's, that's a good response, man. And this is a good point because you may find that a language which you are comfortable with, like I think we mentioned Python earlier, but someone might find TypeScript is much more easier for them to understand. So there's something for everyone. It's just that you need to find what's the one that works for you. I definitely feel it can be overwhelming. Rome wasn't built in a day, so one bite at a time, my friends. And I love the fact that we have so many people who are actually passionate about this. I do want to call out Kevin and uh, Caitlin as well, man. Like they've opened my eyes towards the whole PowerShell world that I was, was totally ignoring for all this while, that there is so much opportunity there as well that we, we could be working on. So if instead of Python, PowerShell is where you rock, oh my God, like there is a cross-platform opportunity there as well. So there's so much more to this space than I guess what comes out. And I did want to kind of switch gears up one more thing with people with no security background as well. Do you reckon they would still be able to take advantage of the open source tools? Like, I guess as long as you're a developer, I imagine. I think this is probably where the build versus buy comes in, honestly, yep. like, cause there's a, there's kind of a, a you know, that whole, I'm not going to use the right word here, but that whole fallacy of like, it's free, it's free. And I'm going to use it because it's free. And then you realize that you've just spent like three man months integrating the free tools. And obviously if you're being paid a wage, suddenly that tool isn't free. So if you kind of have no security knowledge at all, or if you're kind of a dev team that knows you need a security team, but you kind of don't have a security team in your organization. Yeah. That's where I definitely say it would be worth almost paying for products that like almost give you like a virtual security engineer. So I'm obviously going to shameless plug bridge crew because that's what we try and do. We take all of the kind of scanning in Chekhov and air IEM and kind of drift detection and try and build that into a integrated easiest kind of click and it's done way of kind of giving developers that security insight. So, you know, if you get an issue in a pull request saying, Hey, you're about to commit some insecure Terraform, it will give you a link where you can read up on that particular security issue, why it's a policy violation, why it matters and almost kind of be that, that extra security person. And, you know, similarly for security tools for code scanning. Yeah. Go, go find tools to help your team there. If it's a developer that wants to kind of 
move into kind of being a security professional. Obviously, I'm never going to say don't do that because it's an awesome industry and a, an area of the industry to be in. But like if you have like deliverables and deadlines and, and you just know that you have that gap, that's probably a, a good build versus buy conversation. That's awesome. Uh, I was going to say to any developer listening, if you're trying to get into security, it's a great field. Get into it. it. We need more developers on the security side, just saying, because we definitely are trying to bridge the gap I'm going to keep using the bridge analogy now. Like, I'm stealing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah get, get like keep bridging security. this. Get into security. We we do podcasts and drink beer. It's awesome. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I think I was going to say in, in terms of 100% supportive developers getting into the cybersecurity space because we definitely need to fill the gap. And it's also worthwhile calling out that it's an industry which has enough resources out there to help you start that journey. I think we've already spoken about some of the tools already. And to your point about the best tool for the best job, like if you are a team which has, I don't know, nine cloud security engineers and 50,000 developers, and you can you guys can codify the whole thing, you then you maybe you might think that, oh, I don't actually need a paid version until you get to that point. But if you are like a really small team and maybe even one person developer, one person security in a startup maybe, Sometimes yeah. the paid option may be a better option. So yeah, and I think it, you're pretty right. Yeah, and it, and it might be that, you know, that just gets you to where you need to be, like you're solving your immediate issue within your team to kind of mm. overlay that necessary kind of security oversight and security scanning into your team. But, you know, if you're interested in the security side anyway, like that doesn't stop you then getting really into reading the violations, understanding it. You can almost use that product as like, you know, known good knowledge in the field of security to kind of start learning and understanding and, and kind of, you know, becoming more security minded yourself and kind of start your journey that way. I'm going to switch gears now. I think we've been talking about infrastructure as code as security for some time. And we touched on open source versus a paid version as well. Conscious of the hour that we have, how does one start in the whole open source space, right? Like, I think we might have people over here. They want to contribute. They've heard all these tools. What am I looking at? I'm like making my own repo, solving my own problems. Like, where, where do I stand in this case? But again, it will depend on like what that person is trying to achieve. But like all the open source kind of security scanners, like obviously I'm going to kind of focus on Chekhov. But as I said, we kind of have the checks out of the box as part of the code base. So you can also write your own checks if you don't want to kind of open source them. But yeah, if you want to contribute, like one of the easiest ways to contribute to kind of security posture is if there's something you want to check for in your environment that isn't one of the default checks, write a check and submit it as a pull request. So not only is it then going to be by default in all the future versions of Chekhov you may or may not use across your infrastructure, but they're super simple to write. And because they're all already in the code base, there's a load of examples to kind of go and look through and learn how to write those checks. Yeah. So definitely kind of contributing checks, whether it's to Chekhov, whether it's to any other kind of open source security or policy tool, I'd say that's probably like the easiest and would definitely be a really well-received route in, into contribution. I think so. And to your point, if they find that their problem is really unique, you could still make your own tool and add that as a check into Chekhov or any other open right. source tool of your choice, because that way you're giving it out to the community as well. So other people can benefit as well. I think it's kind of like the whole, you're sharing your knowledge kind of a thing. Like, I think this is the same way we've been talking about all these different technologies and 9,000 APIs and everything. I think we've only reached to this point 
because there's a lot of people who have contributed into the space and saying, hey, I'm not going to keep this secret because it I think it's genetic enough and non-sensitive enough that it can be shared across. Other people can benefit from it. Like that's how sure. I see the whole open source community. Completely. And and certainly within the kind of security open source community, it's it's a friendly group. Like one thing I would yeah. say, like if you're not sure where to start, but you know you want to contribute, join a few slacks, reach out to people, tell people you're looking to contribute. Like it's a pretty friendly group from what I can see. Even that message would, I'm sure, be appreciated. Yeah. Well, I take coffees. Uh, if you, if uh, and apparently Matt takes beer and coffee. So uh, at, at if the you, same if you, time, if you guys, in fact. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so if you guys want to reach out to, and do that, they can do, we can do that as well. All right. That's probably late in the night for you as well. I do respect the fact as well, man. Dude, this was awesome. So, where can people find you if they will have any follow-up questions or uh, want to talk to you more about this as well? Yeah, love to. We're building a community for people that want to talk and learn and get involved in codifying security. So this whole thing of adding security into infrastructure as code, automatically kind of scanning security, everything we've talked about. So we've got the codified security Slack and that's at slack.bridgecrew.io. But if you're, if you're not ready for the full commitment of another logo down the side of your Slack app, then just reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at MetaHertz. Yeah, love to carry on the conversation. Any more questions, things like that. Sounds good. And I'll, I'll make sure I'll include the links in there as well in the, in the show notes so people can actually get to it. But this was awesome, man. Thank you so much for spending your time with us, man. I think this, well, I got a lot of value. Uh, sounds like I've, one of those episodes that I've actually learned something new as well. So shout out to the other folks who've kind of taught us something. But thanks for coming in, man. This is really awesome. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And I'm super jealous of your green screen, by the way. It looks great. <laughs> Yeah, this is me before COVID, by the way. This is this is a reminder of what COVID has done to me. <laughs> <laughs> reminder, reminder of where you will be after all this. After yeah, that's this right. That's down. pretty much it. One second, <laughs> haircut and a shave. But thanks again, man. I really appreciate it. I'll I'll see you soon. Then thank you. Thanks again. Cheers. Thank you for listening to that episode of Cloud Security Podcast. If you found some new information from that episode, we would appreciate if you share it with others. Share it with us as well if you have any good feedback or good learnings from the episode. We are on all your favorite podcast platforms. If you don't find us there, you can always go on our website, www.cloudsecuritypodcast.tv to listen to the latest episode. We appreciate your support in helping us grow. It helps us bring more guests. It helps us support the channel. So really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time and talk to you on the next episode.